Good morning. I want to welcome everyone to Common Reason Bible Study. Welcome those who are attending in person, those who are watching us online and listening uh, on the internet. My name is Russell Atkins. I'm filling in for Tim today, who is in Chicago. Let's start class with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we pause in our morning to acknowledge you as our creator and our redeemer. Uh, And I want to thank you for this opportunity to meet together to uh, study your word and to uh, broaden our minds and and continue the transformation of our hearts. Send your angels here to guide our study. Uh, Be with those of our group who are not with us and bring them safely back in the weeks ahead. In Jesus' name, amen. Today we're studying lesson number five in the uh, the quarterly of... Regarding the Thessalonians, uh, the title of today's lesson is the Apostolic Example. Um, Did anyone have any glaring issues or questions as they looked over the lesson this week? Anyone other than me? No? All right, well, we'll dive in, see if we can can ask and answer some questions uh, that I had. Uh, Sabbath's lesson. Someone read the memory text for me, please. This is 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 4. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. Okay. Um, my, my first question is, what does it mean to please God? I mean, how how does that happen? First, agree with him. Does it please him that we agree with him? It says when we follow up with the agreement. Dr. Moses? If we're robots, no. We're just mimicking him just because we're a parent. So if they came into a state of agreement and harmony with uh, your ways and family's ways, methods and principles, uh, and followed those uh, voluntarily out of a sense of love, yeah, that I would I would think that would please a parent and God as well. Um, another question was, what sort of a ministry is pleasing to God? And also, what does it mean to have our hearts tested by God? The text says that we have been approved by God to be entrusted with a gospel. To be entrusted with which gospel? Don't most ministers think that they're approved by God? Does he approve of all ministers or of all versions of the gospel? And how can we discern the differences if, if we cannot read hearts or minds? These are some questions that I came up with as I was preparing for the lesson. And keep these in mind as we, uh, as we delve into this. Hopefully we can answer some of these questions. Uh, Sunday's lesson, entitled Boldness and Suffering. Paul refers back to his experience uh, in Philippi 
Uh, and we can read about this in Acts 16, verses 16 through 40. I'm not going to read all these verses, but to summarize, this is where uh, Paul and Silas were thrown into jail by the city magistrates, and uh, earthquake came, loosened their bonds, all the prisoners gathered together, they were singing hymns and, and rejoicing, and and the jailer and his family were converted. Um, and then they move on to Thessalonica, and consider that consider the treatment that they had at the hands of the the magistrates in, in uh, Philippi. Might they have actually brought some visible sign of that treatment of the abuse? Might they have had some scarring or some healing wounds from being beaten? Might they have had some disfigurement? Um, how, how would that? If someone came into into here to teach the lesson, and they they had uh, they had sign they had scars or lashes on their back from being beaten from from uh, spreading a Christian gospel in an Islamic country, would that lend any would that lend any credence to um, what they were saying? Maybe, maybe not. I guess I guess scars on their back you might not see. True, but if it was visible. Uh, if they're black and blue all over their head and their face and, you know, they had, you know, fresh wounds. Right. You would, you know, if I give you pause. Mm-hmm. I think it would still depend on whether they're speaking the truth or not. And you'd have to judge that by, oh, by their fruits. Absolutely. This is this is something that uh, we as listeners need to be discerning about. In the back, well, it would show a deep level of you know a certain level of commitment because those beatings were meant to be a strong deterrent. They weren't some little up tap, some slap on the hand. They're serious beatings. Correct. Yeah, I agree. We got a question from uh, online. Eugene. Uh, some people are attacked for doctrines other than religious. Some people are attacked for doctrines other than Well, that's certainly true. Some people are attacked for a political stance. Um, some people are attacked for no reason at all. We saw that uh, play out yesterday in a theater in Colorado. I mean, you know, how, how do we how do we come up with uh, you know, qualified explanations for for things like that. You know, our our um, our understanding of, of the Holy Spirit being withdrawn, slowly withdrawn from the earth as it's being rejected, uh, gives a an adequate explanation in our minds for um, a senseless act like that. But you know, th- there are those who don't who don't believe that. There are those who believe that God's righteous judgment against, um, you know, people attending a movie that they shouldn't attend. So, you know, 25 years ago, uh, I would have believed that too. Um. So let's let's examine a little bit this idea that um, just because 
just because uh, Paul and Silas and Paul and his companions show up in Thessalonica, bruised, cut, bleeding, scars, uh, you know, evidence of, of uh, maltreatment. Is that in and of itself uh, a sign that they're speaking the truth? Or is it just a sign of their commitment? Yes, sir. A lot of people are willing to go through pain for various reasons. Some are right and some are wrong. I mean, you have lunatics that are willing to suffer for their lunacy. But on the other hand, you take some like Paul and Silas, they've suffered severely, but they have a spirit of love through it all. It shows a totally different you know, perspective and goal to the point where the, the jailer, he, uh, from all appearances, you'd think the jailer would be hardened, but he was so moved that he was willing to give his heart to the Lord because they came out, were willing to go through this through love, and God is love. So, I like where you're going with that. We're going to delve into we're going to delve into this a little deeper because uh, in um, you know Tuesday and Wednesday's lesson, uh, I think the um, I think the lesson kind of puts the cart before the horse. But we'll get there in a minute. Let's look a bit at Monday's lesson. Um, Monday's lesson talks about three different. Um, Keys to persuading people to change their mind, and, and they they use the Greek the Greek words ethos, ethos, however you want to pronounce it, which is a valid argument based on the character of the speaker. Uh, logos, which is either the quality or logic of the uh, argument being presented, and pathos, which is a, an appeal of the argument uh, or of the speaker to the listener's emotions. Based on what we uh, understand uh, is any of these three more important than the other? The ethos, the character uh, of the um, of the speaker, uh, the the logos, the quality of logic of the argument, or the pathos, the appeal to our emotions. Seems to me it would be the the logic of the argument, the sensibleness of what's being said. <laughs> Okay, um, that makes sense to me. Are there any other thoughts? Um, to reach people, you need all three, though. Mm-hmm. People actually want to listen and to hear what you're saying. They need to somehow connect to you through the emotions, through everything that you have to present. Okay. If um, Let's use a disturbing example. Let's say I was a known child abuser, and I presented a quality and logical argument, uh, a, quality, a, a quality gospel, would, uh, would your understanding of my character detract from that? Yes. Sure it would. Of course it would. And would it appeal to your emotions? Let me, let me, re- let me rephrase that. Would it positively appeal to your emotions? <laughs> it, would, it would appeal to a certain set of emotions. Yes. <laughs> I mean, like, take me out back and, and beat me uh, to uh, within an inch of my life. So uh, the character, or our understanding of the character, you know, again, understand that we can't read hearts or minds, but our, you know, we're not we're not completely clueless. So we can see we can see the the fruits of of the spirit or the lack of the fruits of the spirit in, in each other's lives. Uh, so the character, uh, or our understanding of the character, uh, plays a significant role as well, doesn't it? Yes, sir. 
I think this also goes back to our personality type, though. There are some people, there's some friends I have, that they are much more swayed by the emotion of the event, and other people are much more swayed by the personal interaction of the event rather than the intellectual soundness of whatever they're listening to. Yes, they, they pay attention to the soundness, but how much they are affected is much more affected by one of these things more than the other. Mm-hmm. I mean, we've all had professors or teachers, whatever, who are as dry as bones and, and that we did not appreciate their message very much, even though it was concise and, and made sense and everything else, but it was presented in such an awful manner. And um, depending on how you relate to these other two issues helps make it stick or not stick. Okay. So, so what I'm hearing is that there should be, there should be something of a harmony between, uh, between all three of these, um, these different elements, right? Is there a danger in being, in weighing one of them too heavily? Okay. Um, this is this sounded a little bit familiar to me. What what other three uh, things that have we discovered that uh, should exist in harmony? Faith, hope, and love. Okay, those aren't the three I was thinking of, but nicely done. It, because the, our audience is so varied, if you emphasize just one thing, you will appeal to a certain few, but you're going to lose the rest of them. Because, you know, one man may go more by feeling, another may go by more by logic. Mm-hmm. And so you need to bring all of them together to appeal to as many as possible. Correct. I, I, again, I reiterate, I think there should be a, a harmony between the ethos, the pathos, and the logos. I was thinking, too, of the idea that there has to be um, scriptural evidence. There has to be evidence that we can we can see in the natural world and there has to be something that speaks to our own experience and, and that is kind of replicated in our own experience to, to kind of uh, confirm the harmony of all of that together. Right. And those are the three that I, that I had come up with is that, that, that harmonizing between scriptural evidence, between the book of nature, science, if you will, scripture, science, and our own experience. All three of those, rightly understood, will uh, perfectly harmonize with one another. And uh, I think we can say the same thing here, that ethos, logos, and pathos, rightly understood. So if we rightly understand the character of the presenter, and we rightly understand the logic of the argument, and we rightly understand our emotional makeup and how we can be led astray by our emotional makeup, all those things rightly understood, they'll all harmonize if the truth is being presented. Thoughts? Yes. I want to apologize, but I'm still on lesson on Sunday. Okay, that's fine. We, we, can, we can go back. No apology necessary. I have questions and difficulties with that. All right. in suffering. Yes, Paul suffered a lot for the gospel that he was beaten by other people. Mm-hmm. But he had also an infirmity that he prayed about and asked the Lord to remove that from him. True. And obvious, obviously it was not removed from him. If God is what we believe he is, why do good people suffer? Why do we suffer 
by the things that come to us, either internally, our own body, or what we suffer from other people. A loved one that dies, or a loved one that is sick. How about sick children? Do we as parents want to have our children suffer? How, how does God do that to us? What, what's your opinion about that? I struggle with that. No, I understand. And I think, I think every human that's walked the planet struggles with that. Um, you know, we can, we can discuss the, the, the fact that this, this planet is in conflict. This planet's at war. Okay. There's a war going on for our hearts and minds. Um, and in that war, there are casualties that, you know, no one, when, when America went to war, World War II, no one was surprised when, when body bags started coming home. It, it was, in fact, it was expected. I don't think any nation has ever decided to go to war and not expected casualties. Um, because our first parents decided to, um, decided to rebel against God's government and God's law, as we understand it, the law of consequence and et cetera, et cetera, um, every one of their offspring has been infected with the same problem. We've been infected with fear and selfishness. And we've all gone to sleep. Well, I shouldn't say we've all gone to sleep. There are some who haven't gone to sleep. Enoch and Elijah uh, were translated without seeing what we humans understand as death. I would suggest I would I would encourage you to go to Patriarchs and Prophets and read the first chapter. Why was sin permitted? If you haven't read that lately, that's a that's an amazing uh, insight into why God allowed Lucifer to rebel in heaven and take a third of the angels. And think about the pain that that caused God right there to lose a third of his children to rebellion. And Lucifer, the first his first creation. Think, consider that for a minute. So, Russell, yeah. One thing I heard one time that I thought was really good was um, that God's will is just not done here on this earth. We live in a planet where He's not having His way, and that's why He asks us to pray, "Thy will be done," because His will's not being done here. Right. And things are out of place here and broken here, and so we are all part of that mess. And we suffer the consequences of that. And that's why it's hard when people will say, God's in control, God's in control, mm-hmm. God's in control. That's right. Because if they, if they um, kidnap my child, molest them, cut them up, whatever they do, is God in control of that? And if so, they would blame God for that behavior. Right. But I appreciate a God that allows freedom of choice. Unfortunately, our choice is pretty poor. And then, so people reap the consequences of my choice. I hurt mm-hmm. him because I encroach on his freedom, or I take my freedom way out of bounds, and then I hurt, I get drunk, I go in a car, I kill somebody. Was that God's will? That I get drunk, go in a car, and kill somebody? Certainly not. But it's my freedom of choice, which it, now impacts your freedom of right. choice. Right. It wasn't God's will that a man walk into a crowded theater uh, with three to four weapons and start shooting and kill 12 and injure nearly 60. Okay. It's not God's will, but where does God intervene in that man's choice? At what point would he, would he intervene? Would he prevent 
the, the gun dealer from selling him the weapon? Would he prevent the ammo dealer from selling the ammunition? Would God give him four flat tires on the way to the theater? Does God prevent his parents from coming together and forming and him being born? Where, where in that process does God intervene and not, and then stop being God, a God of, of freedom of choice, a God of free will? So. It's like we, we wish for a, a realm where things would be done right. But in order for that to happen, given our personal natures, God would have to be a puppeteer and force us all to do the right thing, whether we want to or not. And then we live in a world of decay. Because of our choice, we're not improving. Mm-hmm. We're actually decaying. So we get illnesses and sicknesses and so on, the result of, of genetic issues and decay that have been brought on by sin. You know, God could reverse it all. But then there's a point to be made, too. This is currently, you know, Satan's demonstrating his rule, what that's like. And He's revealing his government. We, we, I guess, have to get really fed up with that. And it also... Think about the the yearning that 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 we have of seeing events like something that happened yesterday, or watching a child die, or or having to bury a parent, or you know any of the thing, any of the rotten things that we deal with here on this planet. Doesn't that produce a yearning in, in deep inside for something better? Yes. I mean, doesn't that doesn't that just and doesn't it get doesn't it get stronger almost daily? That to yearn for something better, you know, we're gonna when we get to heaven, we're gonna we're gonna look back and we're gonna see that that everything that we went through on this planet was beneficial for the transformation of our character and for the and and for the end result of us spending you know eternity with with uh, our Savior. You had another question, Connor? Uh, yeah, uh, I was thinking the same thing. When our children hurt, where do they go? They come to us as parents in order to find comfort. Mm-hmm. And so the suffering that we have in this, this world, as has been said before, either drives us away from God or it brings us closer to God. And when I suffer, when I have pain, my wife died three years ago. I wasn't ready for that. Sure. But it happened anyway. And I've learned in pain and suffering and so forth to say to God, Lord, if it comes from the devil, then Rebuke him. Kick him away from me. But if, it's come, if it comes from you, help me to bear it. Ellen White writes in uh, Mount of Blessing, page 71, Nothing comes to us except by God's permission. And whatever is permitted is for our good. I want to make one correction. I heard you say that Adam and Adam rebelled against God. Adam did not rebel against God. He was deceived. I'm going to suggest that Eve was deceived. I think Adam made a very clear choice. Adam made a choice to join his wife. That's right. But he did not rebel. He made the wrong choice. Isn't that what rebellion is? I I, I want to stand up for Adam. Adam did not rebel against God. I I respectfully disagree, but that's okay. Tina? I was just going to say the sun shines for the just and the unjust. You have, say, a Christian who's praying for rain that his crop will produce. Then you have one across the street who's not a Christian, prays it doesn't rain so he can harvest his, his hay. Mm-hmm. You know, if God did only the good for those that serve him, would people not serve him just because they want to get God's blessings? 
I mean, uh, we have to, we live in a world of sin. We have to accept the fact that that's, that's where it is until we get to heaven. That's right. And again, I go back to this, this yearning that, that is produced uh, within us for something better. I mean, we just, we, we, there has to be something better. Isn't there a difference between making a choice to disobey and rebellion? I look at rebellion as just, you know, you're, you're fighting against the yearning of God. Okay, you keep, you know, and, and you go. But just, you know, sometimes we just, you know, we'll face a temptation. We know it's wrong, but we'll go ahead and do it. Is there a difference there in rebellion and making a choice, even though you know it's wrong? Well, this is kind of getting us towards Wednesday's lesson. Let me ask you this. When you see it in kids, you know, a rebellious child, Mm -hmm. they're fighting constantly, you know. And then there's other children who will, you know, they want to do what's right but they sometimes will make a wrong choice. I just, I just kind of look at, you know, I'm standing up for him a little bit, you know, on the rebellion thing. But doesn't the intentionality, the, the intentional choice, decide whether it is rebellion or, or, a cho- or a choice to follow what you know to be right? I don't think rebellion is defined necessarily as the... the vociferousness of it, the loudness of it. You can have a rebellion that is a quiet or a silent rebellion, but it is still an intentional choice to go against. Dr. Moses. Does it make a difference in the destination that you are, or the, the destination that you arrive in? That was my question. Does the law... Based on how you make the choice on which to go down that road. Correct. Whether you voluntarily make that choice and it's a poor choice but you make that choice or whether you rebel and you storm off down that road does the law of gravity care whether you willingly jump off a cliff whether you're deceived into jumping off a cliff or whether you follow someone that you trust off the cliff to 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 keep to keep the analogy with the law of God, uh, I actually refrain from saying whether somebody pushes you off the cliff because Satan cannot push us into rebellion. Okay, he tempts us into rebellion by our by our nature that has developed over six thousand years, a sinful nature that leads us into rebellion, but he cannot force us into into a defiance of the law of God. So to be pushed off a cliff is, you know, the law of gravity still doesn't care. Okay. Does the law of God function any differently than the law of gravity? Or is the law of gravity a revelation, a microcosm of the law of God? It's a different analogy, though, is if you're, if you're coming to a fork in the road and we come to many in life. Mm-hmm. Does it matter on your end destination whether you w- just went along with the band uh, of folks? Uh, but what, whichever way you come to the choice of the path you're on, 
if you make that intentional element, either by association and just hanging with, or by that intentional choice that she was talking about, of you come to to uh, a decision and you you make an intentional choice, you will still end up at the destination that that road takes you for that for that those steps of the journey. The great, the incredible part about God being that He He is wooing you to the other road. Um, and calling to you and uh, and can draw you to that road too. But that, again, is a choice. Right. Well, what if what if someone reversed the signpost of that fork? What if, what, if, what if the correct pathway is to the right, someone turns the sign, says correct pathway is to the left? Does it, does it matter whether you were tricked into that destination or whether you made that destination whether you made that choice to go left on purpose. But I would promise that God speaks to the heart as well so that if you truly ask for about His leading and you communicate directly with Him, that He will impress upon your heart so that it can help you not go down uh, a deceptive path if your will honestly is to follow Him. Yes, I somewhat agree. It depends on it. It depends on which God you believe in, though. Explain. Well, I mean, if you believe in a, if you believe in a kind, loving yeah. God, that that's you know, Scripture tells us that God's kindness leads us to repentance. Right. And but if you believe in a angry, vindictive God, okay, there, there are a lot of atheists out there that. Were presented an angry, vindictive God, and they said, yeah. "Not interested. Right. Don't believe." It. They throw the baby out with the bathwater. Don't believe in God at all. But don't you think this God would still be attempting to reach their heart? In oh, the, absolutely! In the beauty of a sunrise, and in various ways to be able to speak to them gently that that I'm really here, and and to to try to draw them into get to know his true nature? No question about it. In fact, uh, I I firmly believe there will be atheists in heaven yeah. that will be introduced to the, 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 the being uh, on the throne with the rainbow of sapphire around it, and they'll say, who are you? Yeah, just a quick comment in that. I, I sometimes think we need another term besides, in addition to atheist, which means against God. I suspect there are many a-religionists. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And sometimes we assume that, well, if it's an atheist, they really don't want anything to do with God. And some don't, I right. suspect. But, but I think some are searching for that piece of the puzzle to fill that God-shaped hole that we all have. Right. Any other thoughts? Let's look at, uh, let's see. Uh, later on in, in Monday's lesson, um, Paul uses three words to describe uh, what the lesson describes as a poor motivation for ministry. Uh, error, impurity, and deception. And this gets back to my point about, will make any difference whether we're sincerely preaching an erroneous gospel or if we're, pre- if we're preaching the correct gospel based on the desire for self-promotion or if we're intentionally trying to deceive by preaching a false gospel. Is it going to make any difference to our character? Is it going to make any difference to the character of those who to hear us? 
Yes. Paul talks about in Romans about um, how some people were te- preaching the gospel from a bad motive. Mm-hmm. But good things happened in spite of that. Mm-hmm. It maybe didn't happen to them, but it maybe did happen to their hearers. And so um, I don't think that all things are good, but God can take all things and work toward his, his kingdom in spite of them. Mm-hmm. And so, no, not all things are good. All things work together for good. Right. Thank you. Well said. Yes. I know speakers that are um, adulterers, um, liars. They do all kinds of evil things, but yet sometimes they'll get up and they'll preach a sermon that is 100% right. And because those men are evil in their personal life, um, doesn't mean the Holy Spirit can't work through their words. It's, it's it. You know, it's really not about us anyway. We're told that the rocks would cry out if uh, we didn't spread the gospel. You know, so those people, the Holy Spirit's working on their heart, and in spite of that man's unconverted state, they hear the truth, and because the Holy Spirit's already working on them, they, they receive it, they accept it, and it takes root. Thank you. Let's Can move on. Let me think of Balaam. Balaam? Yes. <laughs> Oh, sorry, clarify. Um, I was just thinking about how Balaam was up there trying to curse Israel. And the words that he was speaking were words that God wanted him to speak instead of words that he really wanted to be speaking. So truth was being said, even though his heart was just all wrong. (laughs) Yeah, I, 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 I still wonder about that. I wonder about whether God put those words in his mouth or whether him just being a prophet of God, he was just unrestrained and, and spoke the truth. Because he, he he clearly wanted to take money to curse Israel. I mean, that was his motivation. Um, and yet he didn't. And thank you for cloudying that. <laughs> yes, sir. It's really interesting how God gave Israel a king after their own heart. Not of God's choosing, but mm-hmm. he gave them what they wanted. In my opinion, Saul was never a converted man. However, different times the Holy Spirit would move on him, and he would even prophesy right. as an unconverted man. And um, so that's no indication that someone's right with God because they're doing the Lord's work or the Holy Spirit moves on them to do something. Mm. This is a nice segue to Tuesday's lesson. Talking about pleasing God, um, which comes first, the cart or the horse? Not a trick question, the horse. (laughs) Which comes first, the quote behaviors or the transformation of character? It varies. It does. It depends. Sound like a classroom of attorneys <laughs> it's all one big gray area first, actions because of the right motive or the conversion of the heart which Both comes first the conversion of the heart or the correct motives your atheist is converted in a sense that 
They hear the Holy Spirit. They don't know who it is, but they listen to the Holy Spirit. That's a good example. That's a good example of? Well, you know, whether the, 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 the horse or the cart comes first. I mean, well, okay, the, the atheist is experiencing character transformation, whether they, whether they admit it or not. Right. Okay, exactly. the character is being transformed. The behaviors reflect that. Right? Yeah, I mean, he doesn't have I'm, the intellectual knowledge, but he hears the voice of God and he listens. Yes. But what about the, the people who put Christ on the cross who were obeying the law outwardly, but inwardly they weren't converted? Exactly. That, that, that's my point. My, my point is I believe that the transformation of character comes first, resulting in, resulting in, the, in the change in behavior. But they had the right behavior. Did they? But they were building God. They didn't even have the right behavior. They weren't even keeping the Sabbath. They, they right. said they were keeping the Sabbath, but they were not even keeping the Sabbath. They could not. And keeping the traditions of men. If you want to look at a list of rules, you can keep a list of rules. But the question is, why? So, a different example. Children of Israel going through, uh, going through, uh, being re- you know, released from Egypt and heading across the desert. Were there ten commandments introduced? Yes. Why? But why? I think in trying to be able to help them have some sense of order and to be able to understand some right actions to do, but that was not. God's ultimate goal for them, his ultimate goal for them was to be able to have that heart connection, get to know me better while we're out here, be able to learn and and heal a, a relationship of trust. But um, a willingness on the heart uh, to be able to, to understand, accept, and follow through with that on the people that was obviously lacking so much of the time. It doesn't mean that the the action doesn't have a role but the best action and the right action comes when that transformation of heart occurs. I'm going to suggest that the Ten Commandments were presented to the children of Israel because of the state they were in. Exactly. And it was the beginning, God's beginning, of transforming their character. And the Ten Commandments got misunderstood. Right. To, to be a list, a recipe, a cookbook follow and then that cookbook got uh exploded with the traditions of men down to the point where we see the pharisees keeping the rules and, and killing the author but the, the-, the ten commandments were to be a result the ten commandments were to be this is what your life will look like if you allow me to to circumcise your heart to remove the heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh but the ten commandments are not the end of your journey correct right. absolutely they're the start exactly and it also goes to God working with people where they're at. I mean, here he's dealing with fairly illiterate slaves that don't understand the big picture and had been for generations. And he Correct. And basically be very black and white with them. That's why he said clean and unclean. He didn't have the time and they didn't have the technology to understand epidemiology and microbiology. He just told them this is clean, this is unclean. Right. I mean, imagine a group of people that you actually have to have a rule that thou shalt not murder. <laughs> I mean, really? Well, they were they were slaves, and they were experienced in violence. That's what they knew was violence. 
both yes. Egyptians that came with them, and they were all about get her done production or violence. You right. Know, and and that, your leader was a murderer. Correct. That's right. Yes. There's a, a statement in Christ Object Lessons that, st- that states this much better than I can, so I'll, I'll, let me read it. Please. Christ Object Lessons, page 97. The man who attempts to keep the commandments of God from a sense of obligation merely, because he's required to do so, will never enter into the joy of obedience. He does not obey. When the requirements of God are accounted a burden because they cut across human inclination, we may know that the life is not a Christian life. True obedience is the outworking of a principle within. It springs from the love of righteousness, the love of the law of, law of God. The essence of all righteousness is loyalty to our Redeemer. This will lead us to do the right because it is right, because right doing is pleasing to God. Amen. Well said. So, so was your original question about behavior that is motivated from from the heart or just outward because I still believe that there can be an outward looking, good looking thing that has inside of it non-conversion. A corrupt motive? Yes. Oh, absolutely. Okay. So. Yeah, in fact, uh, in Matthew 7, 21 through 23, uh, it says, this is Jesus speaking, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name drive out demons, and in your name perform miracles? I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you you workers of iniquity. So how, how did people cast out demons, perform miracles, and prophesy in the name of Jesus of Nazareth and be unconverted? I hear crickets. I don't have a great answer for it either. They didn't know the spirit that was working through them. One possible explanation, they didn't know the spirit that was working through them. And maybe they called that spirit Jesus of Nazareth. Yes. Yes. But sometimes God has a result that he wants. And maybe it's not about you or the person who's got evil motives, but it's the result of how God can use that tool, so to speak, to accomplish a good that he wants to accomplish somewhere else. Paul was even worried about that. Lest I, after all of this, helping people there, don't make it myself. Mm -hmm. You know, there is a real concern that either you're going to be wrong and lead everybody down the wrong path, or you're going to help other people down the right path and you won't make it yourself because your your motives are wrong or you know you're tempted in some way that causes you to actually go away but the end result from God's perspective is that that accomplished great good for whoever the result of that was Wendell one more comment and we're going to move on This goes back to the heart of the issue about whether this is a relationship with someone or whether this is about rules and external compliance to a given set of behavior, because that's truly not obedience. Obedience is obedience of the heart. And the yearning after a relationship with he who has given all for us. Well said. 
the uh, third paragraph in Tuesday's lesson says, human beings need a sense of worth in order to function. We often seek this worth by accumulating possessions, by achievements, or through the positive opinions that others express about us. But all these sources of self-worth are fragile and so temporary. Genuine and lasting self-worth is found only in the gospel. When we fully grasp that Christ died for us, we can begin to experience a sense of worth that nothing in this world can shake. My questions will, were, will our self-worth be any different based on which gospel we believe? Consider the gospel that has Jesus standing between the angry Father and us, pleading for mercy because we are covered by his blood and he paid the penalty for sin. What kind of, does that gospel help our self-worth much? Doesn't do much for mine. Now consider the gospel that Jesus has, that has Jesus standing at the right hand of God, pleading with us, along with God, to take the healing remedy for our sinful disease and allow him to transfer our character into his likeness. Does this gospel do any more for our self-worth? Am I the only one in here that sees a trend in society that, um, you know, we're trying to help people's self-esteem? We don't, there are schools that don't give out grades anymore because to give a child a D or an F would damage their self-esteem. And we have athletic um, endeavors that don't give out, they don't have winners and losers anymore because to have a team beat another one would damage you know, half the participants' self-esteem. Um, you know, parents try not to allow their children to fail for fear, fear of damaging their self-esteem. Uh, and we won't even get into what governments do for this. Um, does this make any sense? I mean, how, you know, to get a... What would it do for a child's self-esteem to get a D one semester in English... I'm speaking for personal experience here. <laughs> and to realize that the child didn't apply himself, he didn't uh, participate in class, he didn't study, he didn't do what was asked, and to come to realization that, you know, I could do better and then get a B or an A the next semester. What does that do to a child's self-esteem? Of course, it improves it. Building character. <laughs> What about the child who works his tail off, does the best he can, and still gets a D? What does that do for his self-esteem? It wasn't an F. That's good. A person who gets good grades all the time, studies hard, applies themselves, and they don't get a grade because there's too many kids in the class that don't study, that don't care, that don't want to pass. Exactly. Is it fair to that other person, those, those that try hard? Right. Sh shouldn't, aren't we supposed to wrestle with the gospel? Aren't we supposed to tear it apart and delve into it and, and, and s seek and search and, and wrestle? That, that, that's the word. That's the best word for it, to wrestle with it, and it for ourselves and to make mistakes. How, how are we going to learn anything if we don't? You know, treating it as uh, untouchable and not to be not to be um, questioned. Yes. Oh, yeah. certainly then. Yeah. Um, because God wants that relationship with you to be able to to have you ask the questions that are in your heart to be able to help you understand and explain. 
Yeah, I mean, tr truth loses nothing to investigation. In fact, it, it, it gains, truth gains everything with a detailed investigation. Mm -hmm. That's why, frankly, that's why the earth is here. That's why, that's why we're here. God provided evidence that Satan's allegations about him in heaven were incorrect. So here we are. Helps with the light of truth, things become more clear. Yes, absolutely. Living in darkness. All right, moving on, Wednesday's lesson. The third paragraph, when, uh, the lesson states, while Paul's primary motivation was to please God, in verses 7 and 8, he expresses an additional motivation, his great affection for the Thessalonians themselves. Verse 8 uses the language of an emotional warmth. Preaching the gospel was more than a duty for Paul. He gave his heart and even his whole self to the people. Um, I'm going to suggest that the lesson has a cart before the horse. This one. In my opinion, Paul's primary motivation for preaching the gospel was revealing Christ's love to his fellow man. And this, by default, was pleasing to God. Okay? The Pharisees' primary motivation was to please God, and look where that got them. Thoughts? The Pharisees again? Pharisees' primary motivation was to please God. Do you think it was to please God? Or do you think it was self self promotion? Please self. Well, I mean, we can look back through time and see that there was it was self promotion. But I, I really think that they they thought that they were commending themselves to God by by following every letter of the law that they had made up themselves. When they were meeting in their Sanhedrin council in the dark, in, in night, saying, "Are we going to arrest this guy? Plant false witnesses, uh, take a bribe, or give a bribe to someone to turn him in?" Do you truly think they were thinking with a motive of pleasing God, or do you think they were at self-preservation and self-seeking um, self-honor? They were pleasing God, a God of false, right. the, the false beliefs and yeah. and rules and, and government. They were pleasing their version of God. But yes. even you said earlier, 20 years ago, you would have said that that man went into that theater mm -hmm. God's will to kill the people. You have changed. That's right. Time. That's right. Your thought of who God is and stuff has changed. Correct. And I think that's the same for a lot of us. It's through the experiences of life. That our true picture have got, of God has changed. We see him as a different person. So therefore, our whole, in some ways, philosophy of our religion has changed. That, that, that's correct. But did that happen to all the Pharisees? Maybe not all. I can picture it might have happened to some of them. Look at the Adventists. Has it happened to all of the Adventists? No, it has not. Right. But some of us it has. Yes, it has. So it could have been the same with the Pharisees. It's a matter of as... Truth, as God speaks and opens up visions and moments of truth to your mind and helps to encourage you to, to follow and ask those questions and to seek out uh, truly to know him better, that you're drawn into that brighter light of truth versus if whenever you have uh, truth speaking to your heart and you choose to ignore it, uh, then creating more of um, that closed-in darkness. Yeah, yeah I, I have no issues with the arguments. My, my, 
my statement was that I believe that the Pharisee's motivation was to please God. And the problem was the God that they were trying to seeking to please. Okay. They didn't they didn't recognize God. They obviously didn't recognize God himself when he came and walked among them. And when he called them white as sepulchers, they didn't they didn't recognize him. They wanted to kill him. Look at Paul as Saul. He was he was uh, pleasing God. Yeah, perfect example. That's right. Until God opened his eyes. Paul was zealous in pleasing God by you know, imprisoning and, and sanctioning the murder of Christians. And that's the point when the Holy Spirit speaks to your heart. Do you listen? There's the difference. Do you close your mind to it and say, I already know the truth? Or do you listen to the Holy Spirit? Mm-hmm. Uh, that's correct. Yes, sir. I, I really believe that for the majority of them, um, I agree with you that they did believe they were pleasing God, but somewhere along the line, further back in their experience, there came a time when either someone offended them or the truth offended them and they rejected the truth. And so many people that I know today, they're, you know, they're considered good Christian people, but they're mean and malicious. And somewhere, some point in time, they rejected truth and they get to the point where they believe their own lies. And that's what the Pharisees did. Because they rejected truth, they actually believed their own lies after time went on. And they really thought they were doing God's will. It's the only thing left. If you reject truth, you're, the only thing left is to believe a lie. And that's why that's why Scripture says, you know, I'll give them over to, to believe a lie. It's what happens. Um, <clears throat> Thursdays and Friday's lessons somewhat agree with the assertion that the, the Wednesday's lesson has the car before the horse. If you look at Thursday's lesson, uh, it says the key is the love that Paul had for his converts, okay? Paul loved the Gentiles and the Jews, and he desperately wanted to see them come into the light of a transformed character. His primary motivation wasn't to please God. His primary motivation was a love for, for his fellow man, and that's what pleased God. He did all he could to model authenticity to them, yet he realized there were things that they were not ready to handle. So he worked with his hands and adapted his instruction, all in order to avoid putting necessary barriers in the way of people's acceptance of the gospel. This is a powerful lesson in self-sacrifice for sure. And from Acts of the Apostles, this is quoted in Friday's lesson, no matter how high the profession, he whose heart is not filled with the love for God and his fellow man is not a true disciple of Christ. He might display greater liberality, but should he, from some other motive than genuine love, bestow all his goods to feed the poor, the act would not commend him to the favor of God. So, uh, with a few minutes less left, let's look at Thursday's lesson. We could probably have spent all day on this one alone. Thursday's lesson uh, entitled "Not to be a, to not be a burden." This is um, this is touching on Paul's uh, employing himself as a tent maker in order to you know to provide for himself and not to expect handouts from the converts. Um, my my question was: Did did God ever intend for ministers to work to only work at ministry? Are they supposed to be entertainers one day a week and then prepare for the entertainment the other six? 
Well, the priests and Levites had their job, and they didn't. They were given property. They were given offerings. Were their food to eat, and so on. I didn't think they were given any property. Yeah, they did actually have a little bit of property. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The cities of refuge were they? Okay. But they, but they were. Their service was for the Lord, and they were given food to eat by the offerings of the people. So that was their job. Well, that's fair. Um, this is a summary of uh, of Paul's education. In let's see what. This day with God, I think, is the uh, reference. Though Paul set a diligent student at the feet of Gamaliel, and I'll probably butcher that, he also learned a trade. He was an educated tent maker. It was the custom among Jews, the wealthy as well as the poorer classes, to train their sons and daughters to, for some useful employment. So that, should adverse circumstances come, they would not be dependent on others, but would have an educated ability to provide for their own necessities. They might be instructed in literary lines, but they must also be trained in some craft. This was deemed an indispensable part of their education. Uh, Solomon gives us some other insights, and there are numerous references in Proverbs that that are in the notes and you can look up. My, My final question is, how different would our church look if it were modeled after this early church? Where our minister is not, where it's not a top down hierarchy. Our ministers are trained in a useful trade and also in ministry. Will our church look better or worse? Yes. They were trained that way if there was a need. They could fall back on that. That's why they said they were trained there. Not so should adversity, should uh, adversity come. You know, even Peter, um, Jesus said, leave it. And follow me, you know. We don't know if he did that five days a week, and and um, well, we don't know if we don't know, we don't know if Peter continued fishing to provide for his own needs or some other right. some other um, no. useful work. We don't. Any other final thoughts? Yes, Wendell, and then we got one in the back. I think it goes both ways. One is. We, as a culture, have depended on our ministers to do the work of the gospel. And yet that is an individual work that each of us as believers is entrusted to do. And that we are blessed by doing that work. And so we lose something by giving that responsibility to someone else. On the same token, the minister is a blessing to those around him when he does minister to the church in total in helping instruct and comfort and pray with and whatnot. And there probably is not enough time for him to do that and to do a vocation in addition. Having said that, there are many ministries where people enter various territory in which they work as a job and they do ministry on the side, and that is the beginning of that that work in that area. Mm-hmm. Well said. In the back, yes. Eugene makes the point, uh, we're all priests and kings now. We are all priests and kings now. Yeah, we, we are certainly intended to be priests in, in the living church of God, as well as pillars in the living church. Let's, uh, let's close with prayer.
Gracious Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for the insight that you've given us in today's lesson. Um, I ask that you please continue the transformation of character in each of our hearts. In the name of Jesus, amen.